special, Naomi Osaka is the ultimate power player. That's right. Naomi made history, earning a staggering $37.4 million over the past year to earn the title of Forbes' highest-paid female athlete ever. That's right, ever. Japanese tennis star Naomi Osaka recently became the highest-paid women's athlete in history after winning the U.S. Open for the second time. A point to end it. Naomi Osaka wins her second U.S. Open championship. At just 23 years old, the three-time Grand Slam champion has already made history as the first Japanese tennis player to ever win a Grand Slam title. And she did it while being a vocal advocate for the Black Lives Matter movement and raising awareness of issues around police brutality and systemic racism around the world. Seven masks, seven names. What was the message you wanted to send, Naomi? Um, well, what was the message that you got? was more the question. I feel like the point is to make people start talking. Osaka's tremendous accomplishments placed her not only among tennis icons like Serena Williams, but also alongside historic Japanese women's sports champions, such as the gold medal Japanese women's volleyball team at the Tokyo 1964 Olympics. And the 2011 FIFA Women's World Cup champions. Where do Naomi Osaka's accomplishments fit into the longer history of Japanese women's sports? How have Japanese women's global sports accomplishments advanced gender equality in Japan? What role did sports play in construction of gender norms in Japan? And finally, how have social understandings of women's sports changed over time? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the cultural significance of women's sports in Japan, I talked with Dr. Helen McNaughton, Senior Lecturer in International Business and Management and Chair of the Japan Research Center at SOAS University of London, along with co-editor of Japan Forum, the official journal of the British Association for Japanese Studies. Dr. McNaughton is the author recently of From the Witches of the Orient to the Blossoming Sevens, Volleyball and Rugby at the Tokyo Olympics, now available in the Asia-Pacific journal Japan Focus. I started by asking Dr. McNaughton to reflect on the historic nature of Naomi Osaka's recent accomplishments. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's amazing what she has accomplished, isn't it? I mean, she's, like you said, she's now the highest paid female athlete in history. She's won the US Open for a second time, become the first Asian woman to win three Grand Slam titles. And I believe at 22 years of age, she's also the youngest three-time Grand Slam winner now as well. It's pretty incredible what she's done. And I was just thinking about the journey of women's tennis the other day. Funnily enough, I was listening to a podcast interview by Billie Jean King because it's 50 years this week, actually, since Billie Jean King and the original nine broke away from men's tennis and formed the Virginia Slims Tournament and subsequently the Women's Tennis Association, the WTA. I was listening to Billie Jean King talk about tennis and she said that in 1967 at Wimbledon, she won all three championships. She won women's singles, she won the doubles, and she won the mixed doubles in 1967. And her prize at Wimbledon was a book voucher. (laughs) And she also said something like, you know, she spent decades playing tennis. She won 39 Grand Slams over the course of her career. And in total, she earned just under $2 million. Now, last year, Osaka became the, you know, she's just become the highest female paid athlete. And last year, her earnings were $37.4 million. So I know we can't compare like for like, but it's thanks to the efforts of players like Billie Jean King and, of course, others like Serena and Venus Williams, 
that Osaka has got to where she is today. Of course, she's got there in her own effort, but I'm sure she would be one of the first to acknowledge that other women have come before her. But certainly it's a fantastic accomplishment. And of course, Japan wants to claim her as Japanese, which indeed she is. She has Japanese citizenship. She is mixed heritage. Um, Of course, her mother is Japanese and her father is Haitian. She's grown up in America, but she has a real connection to Japan. So of course, Japanese media are incredibly proud of what she's done and and for her being a, a Japanese athlete. And of course, she's throughout these recent weeks or months throughout the US Open, she has very much stepped forward and championed equality and particularly the movement of Black Lives Matter. So as you know, she's worn a series of, I believe, seven masks as she's walked onto the court advocating the Black Lives Matter movement or bringing it to attention. And so I think what she's doing in that sense, standing up for being a black woman and an Asian woman is really incredible. And yet she's this 22-year-old young woman tennis star. So it's a, it's a lot, I think, for her to handle in media eyes, but she seems to be doing a good job of it. And certainly her accomplishments have been very outstanding and the way that she raises some of these political issues and and even forcing national conversations Mm -hmm. in Japan about systemic discrimination against black Japanese, for example. And we can put her into this context of major women's sports accomplishments in Japanese history. And of course, two that come to mind are the Japanese women's national soccer team winning the Women's World Cup. Mm -hmm. And before that, in 1964, the, the very famous story of the Japanese women's volleyball team. Sure. I would see the volleyball story in 1964 and the more recent women's football success in 2011 as two big turning points in history of sport for women in Japan. And I'll and I'll go on to talk about those in a minute. So we will talk about that volleyball story and we can talk about the, the football story. I think Osaka's victory is much more of an individual victory because she, you know, she's a tennis star, whereas the other two events are team sports. But, she, you know, she is the culmination of, of a steady growth in women's sports in Japan and the success of women's athletes. And certainly tennis is an incredibly popular sport in Japan for women and men, but particularly for women. And it is still with volleyball and basketball. So volleyball, basketball and tennis are still the top three most popular sports played in junior and high school by girls, for example. And so it's not surprising, perhaps, that we have a Japanese tennis star in that sense. All of these Western sports, if you like, tennis, volleyball, football, even rugby, they all were played, uh, you know, that all these Western sports came into Japan during the Meiji and Taisho periods. And in the 1920s, you see this real growth in the playing of Western sports, and you get a lot of the national sports associations formed in the 1920s in particular. But it's really in the post-war that a lot of these sports take off. So one of the real turning points for women's tennis, I would say, it has this royal connection, obviously, in Japan, is because in 1957, of course, he was then the crown prince, Akihito, later became emperor, obviously, and has just recently abdicated. So Akihito met Michiko, who became empress. She was then a commoner. And they met on the tennis court in August 1957. And this became this huge, as you can imagine, tennis romance in Japan. So they met playing tennis. They were on on the opposite side of the net in a doubles match. 
And, you know, this captured the Japanese imagination, of course, that this crown prince was essentially began to court and subsequently got engaged and married Michiko. And so there was this massive Michiko boom in Japan, but it also bought a tennis boom in Japan, as you can imagine. So lots of young women wanting to go out and play tennis, just like Princess Michiko. So it was a massive event and all played out on this very new media of television at the time as well. And then later, Akihito and Michiko were also very prominent at the Tokyo 1964 Olympics. Even though Emperor Hirohito opened the main Tokyo Olympics, Akihito and Michiko went along to the Paralympics quite a lot in 1964. And they brought a lot of attention to what was then the first sort of Paralympic Games and the five-day event. And they went along to that and they really brought a lot of attention to disability sport and this very new international event of Paralympics. But that brings us nicely into the story of what happened in 1964. So as I said, it was a turning point in Japanese history and sport, and I'll, and I'll say why in a minute. But for those who don't know the story of what happened in Tokyo 1964, so essentially what happened, to give away the punchline first, the Japanese women's volleyball team won the gold medal at the Tokyo 1964 Olympic Games. And this was historic in many ways. First of all, of course, this was the first Olympic Games in Tokyo and indeed in Asia. It was also the first time that women's team sports had been included in the Olympics. There'd long been individual sports for women, but volleyball and other team sports were the first time played out in 1964. And the Japan team won gold. This was not a surprise in Japan. Maybe it was, it was a surprise for the rest of the world. And maybe some people, even Japanese specialists listening, don't know this story. But it was not a surprise in 1964 because this team had gone to the World Championships for the first time back in 1960. And essentially what had happened is in 1959, the Olympic Committee had decided that men's volleyball would be a, an Olympic sport. And so Japan had decided for the first time to send a men's volleyball team to the next World Championships in 1960, which was in Brazil at the time. It's sort of as an afterthought, they thought, well, we might as well send a women's team along as well to test the competition. But the Japan Volleyball Association couldn't afford to send a women's team and a men's team. So they basically asked a company called Nichibo, which was a Japanese spinning company, if they could send their volleyball team along. Now, it's no surprise that Nichibo was asked this because they were the top reigning national volleyball team in Japan. They were a corporate team and there's a long association of corporate sports, corporate teams in Japan. We don't have time to go into that, but across many sports, including volleyball. They were the best team in Japan, so they, they went along. And the men only came eighth. The men's team only came eighth in Brazil in 1960. But in a very surprise um, result, the women came runner-up to the Soviet Union, who were the champions. So what Nietzsche decided to do was send their women on a, a European tour the following year in 61, and they played and won 24 consecutive games in Europe. Then in 1962, the following year, the Volleyball World Championships were held again in the Soviet Union and Japan beat the Soviet Union and won the World Championship. So this was a massive upset in the very short space of a couple of years of Japan sending for the first time women to compete internationally in volleyball. Now, in that same year, 1962, of course, it was announced that women's volleyball would also be an Olympic sport at 1964. So when that team came back, there was huge media attention on them and very much expectation that that team could go on 
keep practicing for the next two years and win gold at, nine, at uh, Tokyo 1964 Olympic Games. So a lot of pressure was put on that team to win gold two years later, which they did. They did deliver that. So it was this amazing story. And they were nicknamed during the European tour a couple of years earlier, the Witches of the Orient. And that was translated into Japanese by the media as Tor Yonomazu. And that was because it was about the magic of their play. They were seen to be using these techniques that had never been seen before and have subsequently been likened to sort of martial arts type movements like judo. And so it was the magic or trickery of their play that had upset the Soviets and, and caused them to go on to become not only world champions in 1962, but then Olympic champions by 1964. So it's this real amazing story. And the reason I think it's such a turning point is for two reasons, really. You can imagine it captured the nation's attention. The television viewing figures for that final volleyball game at Tokyo 1964 were something like 85% of Japanese watched it, which I think is a viewing figure that has really not been surpassed much in Japan. But it, the reason it was such a turning point for women in sport more broadly is after 1964 and the success of that team, Sport in Japan became suddenly more socially acceptable for older married women to participate in. So up until that point, sport had been very much a part of the education curriculum for girls in high school, you know, primary, junior high, etc. And it had been part of corporate teams like Nichibo. But the girls were young and it was before marriage. And so physical education was very important. But once you got married and had children, your role was very much, you know, wife and mother and you weren't, you know, expected to be athletes and sports people. But after that victory, and there was a lot of speculation at the time as well in 1964 because they were all unmarried, but they were getting on a bit because they'd been asked to keep playing until 1964. So the captain who I focused on in my research a lot and I interviewed, her name was Kasai Masai. By this point, she was 31 years old at 1964, which is quite old for an athlete at the time, but also off, you know, on the shelf in terms of marriageability in Japan. So after they won, there was a lot of sudden turning of media speculation to their personal lives. You know, what are you going to do now? Are you going to get married? Is it too late to get married? Are you ever going to be able to have children? But after that, during the 70s, the witches went on to help set up what is now known as Mama-san Sports, so sports for mothers in Japan. So this is the legacy of 1964. Not only after 1964, from the 70s onwards, were older married women suddenly more able to participate in sport and join sports clubs and play sport as a leisure activity. The second legacy was that it encouraged a diversification of sports. So volleyball became very popular, obviously, because of the witches. Tennis was popular. But there was this whole sort of plethora of sports that women could get involved in from the 70s onwards. So, you know, in 1975, you get a group of Japanese mountaineers climbing Mount Everest. In 1977, you get Hisako Higuchi winning the US Open golf. You get football starting up in the late 80s and even rugby, which we might talk about later, starting up in the late 80s. So women start to not only play sports throughout their entire lives, not just as young school or corporate members before marriage, but they start to play it in, in later life as well. And they start to play more and more sports. So that's why I think 1964 is such a, a turning point, not only as a, you know, an Olympic victory in itself, but more broadly for a legacy for women in sport in Japan, more broadly across Japanese society. 
And as you mentioned earlier, talking about Billie Jean King and when she won Wimbledon, you know, the prize was so much smaller. And but, you know, now when we look at you know, when Serena Williams wins or Naomi Osaka, and it'd be easy to say, well, look how far the U.S. has come. But mm. of course, there is still issues with gender discrimination and sexism, even in women's tennis. And there was a story just in the last couple of years with Serena Williams at the French Open, for example, they wanted all the women to wear skirts. Mm. And, and so obviously there is these issues still. But and so you were talking now about, you know, how this success of women's sports in, in Japan and Tokyo Olympics in 64 has diversified sport, but there must still be issues there as well. Yeah, I, th- I think there are there are issues. I mean, that was me talking about the positive impact of, of sport for women, you know, this diversification and, and the access or opportunity for women to play sports, you know, while being wives and mothers. But on the other hand, it does play into a lot of gender norms in society as well. So, for example, a lot of my research before I moved into sport research was on women and work in Japan and gender equality in the workplace in Japan. And so, as you know, and, and many of our listeners will know, it's fair to say that Japan is a gendered society you know gender norms are very strong ideals of masculinity femininity social roles and that plays out a lot in the workplace and it plays out in sport as well so you know the way that female athletes are still represented the way that sports is sort of challenging these gender norms, the difficulty women still find in many countries, but also in Japan, of moving into seemingly masculine domains of sport. All of those things still play out. And what I find quite interesting in Japan is that even today, the Japan Sports Council will focus on what they call mama-san sport. So they will have mama-san athlete networks. You know, and on the one hand, it's great because it's acknowledging things like, you know, women athletes need help in terms of return to sport after child. This is professional athletes, you know, return to sport after childbirth and they need to maybe help with childcare, etc. But on the other hand, it's, it's that real sort of categorization that continues in Japan as, you know, becoming wives and mothers. You know, that original Ryosai Kembo, good wife, wise mother ideal is still so prominent in Japan. So men are the breadwinners and becoming a professional sportsman is really part of that you know you can become this amazing male athlete and then you're snapped up as a husband and <laughs> but for women you you're challenging that by becoming an athlete and and it's almost like japan needs to put them into that category of mama son senshu or mama son athletes in order to reconcile what's going on so it's i think it's a real challenge for japan still both in the workplace in the labor force and in sport But, you know, sport is a real means where you can challenge those gender norms. But I think it is still a struggle for Japanese women to do that. And I think it's notable, too, that some of these mama-san sports that you're talking about, golf, tennis, volleyball, you know, perhaps, you know, they can be really marketed as, you know, these kind of feminine sports, perhaps. Yeah. And you've also been looking at women's rugby in Japan. And I'm wondering how does rugby kind of blur the lines a little bit? And and so could you talk about your work on rugby and and then especially with the new Olympics coming up in Tokyo 2020? How are they trying to market women's sports for Tokyo 2020? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think you're right that, you know, the sports that we've talked about so far, tennis, volleyball, those have been sort of very socially acceptable sports for women in Japan for some time. I mean, these were sports that were very early on included in the girls' physical education curriculum and Meiji Japan, etc. They were deemed very suitable for women to play. Maybe not married women initially, but certainly after 1964, married older women as well. But what happens when women start to go into more, as I said, sports that are more 
physical uh, or dominated by men. So perhaps we can talk about rugby in a minute, but um, perhaps we could move on to that Nade Shiko story, which was probably very well known, maybe much more well known to listeners than the witch's story is. But as to again cut to the, the punch the punchline, the women's football team, known as Nade Shiko, won the FIFA Women's Football World Cup in the summer of 2011. And this again was a surprise victory and they won in a dramatic final against the USA. They tied the score in the last minute of the match and it went to a penalty shootout and they won. I mean, if we compare it to the Witches in 1964, this was a completely different story in terms of build-up. In fact, there was no expectation whatsoever. There was no build-up in the media. And of course, Japan in 2011, the summer of 2011, when when this happened, was still massively reeling from the 311 Tohoku disaster. So there wasn't any attention per se on the Nadeshiko team or indeed the Women's FIFA World Cup. But then suddenly they reached the final. And of course, the media naturally picked up on this. And then their surprise victory was a, a source of tremendous national pride and also motivation for recovery to get the nation behind these sort of overnight heroines and use sport as a means of rallying the nation after this terrible, terrible uh, natural disaster that they'd had. So it was a very different story and it was a very unknown sport in many ways in Japan. I mean, the J League for men had only been established, I think it went professional in 93. And of course, FIFA had famously hosted the FIFA World Cup for men in 2002. So men's football had been growing in popularity, but women's football was rather under the radar still. And, and you know, football was such a massive sport for men globally. And it was increasingly popular in Japan, of course. But women's football was sort of under the radar. And so them, you know, winning the FIFA World Cup was just an amazing story. And again, I think that's why it's a turning point. It was a turning point similar to the witches, but different. I mean, it was a reminder for women that there were women playing sports that were, you know, that perhaps there hadn't been much focus on, that women were moving into more masculine or male-dominated team sports like football, and that you could have a career in sport and you could be successful in sport. So I think that was one legacy and turning point. But I think for sport more broadly, and not necessarily related to women like the Witcher story was, this was a way of using sport to help Japan recover from natural disaster. And this sort of rallying of the Nadeshiko victory around the Tohoku disaster was used later on as well. So that kind of sport as disaster recovery became integral when Japan later bid to host the Rugby World Cup of 2019, which was held last year, and even Tokyo 2020 Olympics and Paralympics. So one way of using sport to help rebuild Japan becomes a bigger story. And I think that's why 2011 is such a turning point there as well. Rugby is something I've started studying. It's got a lot of parallels with volleyball in Japan and other sports because as I mentioned, volleyball was a corporate sport for women because it developed in the textile industry in Japan, which was a huge employer of women. Rugby in Japan developed in educational institutions as well, but very much in the corporate world as well. So that rugby developed as a, as a very masculine sport, obviously, in masculine industries like manufacturing, heavy manufacturing later. And it became professional in 2003. And these company teams moved into the, what is now known as the top league. So there's this parallel between corporate teams and volleyball for women and rugby corporate teams for men. Now, in terms of women's rugby, this is the next project I want to do after I finish my project on rugby in corporate teams and, and the impact of the Rugby World Cup that was held last year, which is obviously the Men's World Cup. 
But women's rugby is one of the fastest growing sports in, in the world. Women's football is, is also really popular. And I think, you know, there's always a time lag behind men's sports. So just as the Nade Shikol have moved into football following, you know, the growth of, of men's football in Japan, and just as the FIFA Women's World Cup is, is gradually becoming more popular, rugby is sort of a next domain perhaps for that. So Japan has now hosted the Rugby World Cup, the first, like the Tokyo 1964 Olympics, it was the first time that the Rugby World Cup was held not only in Japan, but in Asia. It was the first time that the men's team, the Brave Boss Blossoms, reached the quarterfinal, uh, got out of the group. So it was a massive event for Japan. And I think the focus is all on men's rugby at the moment. But I think gradually, like football, women's rugby will grow in popularity in Japan and they will increase their presence on the international rugby scene as well. But it's early days. Um, but what was quite interesting during the Rugby World Cup story was that Guinness, the um, Irish beverage, uh, launched an advertising campaign during the Rugby World Cup focused around this um, very little known story of a Japanese rugby team, female rugby team that was formed in 1989 called Liberty Fields. And it's this great ad. You can watch it on YouTube. It's the Guinness um, ad Liberty Fields. You can Google it. But it tells the story of this these women who formed their own rugby team back in 1989. Um, and they had no backing whatsoever. In fact, they got a lot of criticism and, and, you know, people laughing at them in society. I mean, this was 1989. This is them challenging the sort of era of the office ladies or office flowers uh, going out and playing a really, you know, masculine sport. Uh, in any nation, it was still a masculine sport, let alone in Japan. And, and they developed this team all by themselves and they became so successful that a lot of their players were picked for the subsequent first ever Women's World Cup, which was held in 1991 in Japan's centre team. Many of those players from this Liberty Fields 1980s rugby team came from there. And so you, you do get this progressive movement of women in Japan into, you know, into male sports. So mama-son rugby teams are, are flourishing now too. Um, the, there is a professional game as well, so the, the men are known as the Brave Blossoms team and the women are known as the Sakura 15s team and the Sakura 7s team. And of course, rugby is now in the Olympics as well since 2016 Rio. So it is a game that is really growing and the spotlight is on the men at the moment, naturally, because they're doing so well and, they've, and they did so well at Rugby World Cup last year in Japan. But I think hopefully the next step will be rugby for women as well. And so that's going to be my next project to sort of follow that. So I think the organisation of sport in Japan is is really, it's got a really, I mean, I'm sure you can say this about lots of countries and cultures, but sport has a really important social and cultural place in, in Japan. I mean, it's got, a, sport plays a massive role in educational institutions in terms of physical education on the curriculum, you know, high school uh, junior high school clubs, university clubs. It also plays a massive role in corporate life. I mean, corporate teams, uh, corporate sports teams are still a big deal in Japan and have been throughout the post-war years. And it, increasingly, sport is flagged up as really important in Japanese society for older groups. So as you know, Japan has an aging population. So health and well-being of an active aging is, is massive as well. And so I think Japan hosting mega events everything from 1964 Olympics onwards, you know, it's hosted Winter Olympics as well. It's had the FIFA World Cup, it's had the Rugby World Cup, and now it's going to have, hopefully, next year, the Tokyo 2020 Olympic and Paralympics. Part of the um, 
I mean, there's lots of reasons for hosting these types of mega events, but part of the reason Japan is bidding to host them is not only to promote sport across all those levels in society, but also to help further new economic sectors of investment. So everything in Japan from tourism, so sport and tourism, uh, food, sport and tourism, regional revitalization. So this disaster recovery is being massive. It was massive in the Rugby World Cup as well. To promote Japan, I mean, Japan, Japan is promoted at all of these events. 1964, Japan's back on the international, you know, um, world stage. 2020 is all about Japan, the future, uh, sustainability. So mega sports are used not only as massive sporting events, but to promote the country or the soft power of, of that country. And, you know, mega events, particularly the Olympics, gender equality is so important in the Olympic movement. I mean, at Tokyo 1964, women made up only 13% of all athletes at Tokyo 64. And um, Tokyo 2020, they're hoping for about 49% of athletes will be women. Um, in Tokyo 64, there was only seven out of the 20 sports hadn't had an event for women, whereas now um, all events, all, all sports have to have, well, all sports do have events for women and men. And that's very much part of the Olympic movement, um, that, that progress and push for gender equality. So I think that Olympic movement has, has played such a really important role in promoting sports, but obviously it has to play out in, in national societies as well. And I think sport is so important to Japan. There are still gender equality issues in sport in Japan as there are everywhere, but there is a real big push to keep that momentum going in terms of the types of sports that Japan can be successful in, like new sports like rugby, but also to try and promote gender equality and participation of women in those sports in Japan as well. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University, and this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.